listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. With the historic events of the past few weeks, the question of the nature of justice has loomed large in our nation as well as in our community, our congregations. And at Grace DC, uh, we long not only to have the mind of Christ, but to be in and for the city, which means we want to think about and respond well to what we're seeing. But in order to be light, we need light. We need divine wisdom from God. And there is no richer resource on the planet than the scriptures for us to understand justice. And to that purpose, we turn to the book of Amos in the Old Testament as we study the universal justice of God. Yet before we do that, I think we do well to be aware of a few things. The first is our relationship, or rather the relationship between experience and justice. There's an old saying that says, where you stand depends on where you sit. That is, the convictions that we have flow out of the perspective and experience that we have. The Proverbs say a similar thing when they claim that uh, there is wisdom with a multitude of perspectives. Now, for years, the black community in America has testified that there is a justice problem as it relates to police bias and police brutality. And yet, much of America, including the white evangelical church, has not seen it as a pressing justice issue until a few weeks ago. Well, what changed? With the videos from body cams and smartphones, the evidence no longer could be denied. And that experience of seeing that has changed people's understanding of the nature of justice. Or we could have a reverse look at this, another example. It may be, as you have experienced justice in America, you have found yourself tired and hopeless, saying not much has changed and not much is going to change. I recently was invited to a gathering in Prince George's County, Uh, where the county executive, the police chief, the state's attorney had come together with uh, leaders from the African-American church. And they invited a handful of white pastors to be there uh, to be a support. And as I listened uh, to the speakers, there were two themes that uh, came across clearly. One is exhaustion, how tired these leaders are struggling for justice. But the second was celebration. They began to recount the things that they had accomplished over the years together, which really an inspiring model. And so for those that were feeling hopeless and deflated, that experience of what progress had been made uh, changed their perspective on justice. And so our experience will play into this question. The second one is our definition of justice. And here what I mean is um, the problem of partisan justice. 
By that, I'm saying uh, the way political parties will narrow down and divide out biblical justice. As you heard the passage being read, or if you have time to read the fuller passage, we didn't, you find that Amos denounces a variety of things. But uh, one could be considered a conservative concern, the issue of sexual ethics and sexual immorality. The other could be considered in our day a progressive concern, uh, the issue of oppression of the poor. But you notice they're not divided out. They lay side by side because in the Bible, there's not a distinction between personal unrighteousness and social unrighteousness. God sees justice across all of those areas. And so as kingdom-minded people, we have to strive to do the same. I've remarked to the folks at Grace Downtown, if I preach on sanctity of life or traditional marriage, some folk are going to say, you're a conservative. When I preach on systemic racism or unfair wages, other folks are going to say, you're a liberal. But I would say, no, I'm being biblical. It's what I see in Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just call out lust. He called out failing to care for the needs of our neighbor. The point is this. All justice belongs to the Lord. All of it belongs to the Lord, even before it belongs to the world. And so as Christians, we need to be very mindful of where our justice has become partisan. Or maybe even worse, where a brother or sister is actually exercising biblical justice and we don't recognize it as such. Instead, we go, that's worldly, that's conservative, or that's liberal. Or even worse, we, we engage in endless debate. Can we make this commitment in our community? Whatever questions and debates we have about uh, biblical justice, that we do them on the way to doing actual justice. Let's not be like the Pharisees that were off in the corner squabbling over issues. And Jesus said they're not able to discern the weightier matters from the lesser matters. Third, we do well to be aware of the role between the state and the church. Um, it was, um, and here we get into questions uh, about what is uh, acceptable to be political about, quote unquote, or what's being too political. Martin Luther King wisely said, uh, the church is not the servant of the state. It's not the master of the state, but it is the conscience of the state. And you see the prophets fulfilling that role as they speak to the kings as they speak to the state about injustice that they saw. I would say you see Jesus doing a similar thing in the apostles. We often forget that the religious leaders of the day weren't just the spiritual body. They also were a political civic body. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court. This is why they could charge Jesus and help orchestrate his death. So as Jesus and the apostles speak out to them, they are in a sense speaking to local government. Now, to bring it home, it has been in the Presbyterian Church in America, this denomination, uh, typically acceptable to be political about things like abortion or traditional marriage. But when someone begins to bring up issues of police brutality or housing discrimination, that's often regarded as being too political. But I would challenge that. Because we find both of these things, all of these things, represented in the Scripture. Now, before we move into the passage proper, I, I want to offer, uh, I think, a helpful summary of biblical justice that we find in the ESV Study Bible. 
And you can read along with me. One, the Lord Yahweh is the creator of the universe. Therefore, his ethical norms are universal, and all people are subject to judgment in light of them. Two, justice and righteousness and the treatment of other people are the key evidences of a right relationship to the Lord. Three, religious ritual and the absence of just and righteous treatment of others is disgusting to God. Four, Israel's covenant with the Lord did not guarantee special protection for them when they broke the covenant. Rather, it meant they would be held to a higher standard of obedience and would be subject to more scrutiny in judgment. So with that framework in mind, let's now look at three things. The basis of justice, the light of justice, and the motive of justice. So first of all, the basis for justice. By basis here, I don't mean what's the source of justice. That, of course, is God in his character. But rather, upon what basis can God hold us accountable for his justice? And the answer the scripture gives us there is the covenant. Now, covenant is a relational and legal term, right? A life and love bond and commitment. And uh, the closest thing we see to that in our modern day are when people take wedding vows together right, as they in the church make a, a marriage covenant together. But maybe that can be a helpful illustration for us to understand how God related to the nations with his justice and how he related to Israel. Uh, at a wedding ceremony, you have those that are in the congregation, the immediate family, the relatives, and the friends. But they're not just attendees. They are witnesses to the covenant. Uh, they have a relationship to those vows in a sense. In fact, when I do a wedding, I'll say, are you going to do all you can to support this couple? But then you have uh, the uh, man and woman making us a, a special covenant together, a vow together that they don't make with anybody else. Well, in Scripture, you find that God makes a special covenant of grace with Israel. That is, he reveals himself through his word through uh, means of grace, like sacrifices and festivals and things like that. And based on that, they have an obligation to be obedient and be just. But the Lord also has a relationship with the nations, and it comes two ways. One, through their connection to Israel. It's sort of like the congregation idea I was putting forth. Uh, they have a, a connection to, uh, God, through the na uh, to God through, the, through Israel but also by virtue of the fact that God has created all people, that he uh, gives them sun and rain and food, that he has uh, revealed himself through his created world, that he has implanted his justice in the conscience of all humanity. By virtue of that, he can as well hold the nations accountable. Theologians call that the covenant of creation. And so God calls Amos uh, to speak to the nations. And in uh, those days, what we would call modern-day Palestine, there were seven nations that encircled Israel, uh, that came around Israel, and they formed a ring. And it was actually Israel and Judah because at this time the kingdom has been divided. And he calls Amos, a shepherd and a, and a breeder, uh, to be prophet. And Amos speaks during uh, about 760 B.C., and you find the events in Second Kings. You can go there. But in that, as he begins to speak, a principle emerges that we need to be mindful of, and it's this. Um, 
The greater knowledge of the Lord means greater obligation to obedience and justice in this case, and also greater judgment, greater discipline from the Lord. With greater knowledge, there's greater obligation, and there's greater uh, scrutiny from the Lord. The Lord um, will hold Israel and Judah more accountable because what he has said and shown them, they were to be models and messengers to the world. But if that's the case, there's a challenging application before you and I, because we have seen more than even the people of Israel. We don't have just the words of Amos, the prophet, but we have words of Jesus, the great and final prophet. We don't just have the sacrificial system, which was a shadow, but rather we have seen or read and seen the testimony of the Son of God who has come as a sacrifice. We don't just uh, hear the Spirit through the prophets, but rather the Spirit lives in us and dwells in us. The truth is, my friends, we have a greater obligation than the world to justice. We have a greater obligation to the, the, the most energized organization or group of activists because God has revealed more to his people of who he is. But second of all, that, that will lead us to the light of justice. As I said just a few weeks ago, the light shone upon the awful injustice, actually had been shining for many, many, many years, but again, it was uh, seen in a new way. Uh, the injustice uh, that the African-American community has been experiencing. And while it came by light of a camera phone, we mustn't be mistaken about who was behind it. Because we're told, the Apostle John says, in him Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just as all justice belongs to the Lord, just as all justice ushers, ushers forth from the Lord, all exposing of injustice is a work of the Lord. And any time we see injustice exposed, the people of God need to praise God. Instead of being suspicious, instead of going, well, I don't know about this. Any time we see injustice exposed, we need to praise God because it is the work of our Lord. Justice belongs to the Lord. Now, as Amos begins to prophesy to the nations and Judah and Israel, in a sense, he's saying, you may have thought what you were doing were deeds in the dark, but God's seen every bit of it. We see that in the phrase where he says, for three transgressions and for four, God is saying, this isn't one of us, this is a multiplicity of sins. And God, in truth, has been incredibly patient. And this isn't just years, this is decades, generations, even centuries in some cases of this sort of injustice. And while we can't go into all the details of the sin here, we can break them into a couple categories. First of all, Amos addresses uh, injustice of brutality. Here, Assyria is likened to a threshing board. Uh, it'd be back in that day where an ox would carry a wooden board and it would be, uh, you know, run on top of the grain to separate the hauls from the wood, uh, hauls from the grain, this wooden sledge. 
And God says that you have acted that way. You have crushed my people. Or in the case of Ammon, the terrible injustice of being merciless to expectant mothers and slaughtering them. There is injustice of brutality. As well, we see injustice of betrayal. You see, some of these nations had a closer relationship with Israel. Uh, They had a working relationship, for instance, Solomon and Tyre. Uh, And as they worked with Israel, uh, God fulfilled his promise that he said to Abraham, as other people bless you, I will bless them. And so God had blessed these nations, but they sold Israel out. That was the case of Eden, who actually descends from Esau, right? Who is uh, brothers with Jacob in the covenant. And the connection is that um, there's more culpability when trust and betrayal has occurred, right? When relationship would be close. And we have to think about the church in that regard. When brothers and sisters of color, brothers and sisters who are poor, who have suffered with injustice, and yet the church hasn't acted. And it's not just offenses against Israel the Lord is concerned about. He also calls out Moab for for being unjust to Eden. God cares about all injustice and says he he will bring all of it before the light. Now, we struggle with the timing, right? We say, oh, Lord, how long, how long? And that's an appropriate question. If you feel that way, how long? It's a question that the prophets had. And we, we don't know the mind of the Lord and his purposes, but we do know through the Apostle Peter, who said one of the reasons that God is delaying his day, the day of the Lord, which Amos will talk about, is because he's hoping more and more people will repent. He's waiting to see more people repent. Now, Amos then turns to the covenant people. He talks to Judah, and I mentioned the kingdom was divided now, which showed uh, the problems Israel had been having for a long time. They're in the southern kingdom, and uh, Amos doesn't focus so much on what they do, but the fact of the knowledge that they had. You know, it was the darkness done against the light that they had. find a similar idea in Romans chapter 2, when Paul talks about first the judgment that comes to all people and the Gentiles and the nations, but then says uh, those that have the covenant, it's even a worse offense uh, of sin. And then finally, he gets to Israel. And here we need to pause just for a second and appreciate the setup that Amos uses. He's, he's a masterful uh, speaker. And uh, there's both historical context and a literary technique that'll help us appreciate this. Now, uh, Israel is at a time, same with Judah, where they're enjoying a bit of reprieve from the pressure of the nations. They're able to stabilize and begin to prosper uh, in a way they hadn't. In fact, the northern kingdom was specially in a position where they could prosper, and they do. And as they become richer and more wealthier and enjoy a more peaceful society, they uh, believe it's because they have won the favor of God. So as they are listening to Amos go around this circle of denouncements, you can imagine they're just smiling, going, go get them, Amos. That's right. You know, just enjoying that uh, moment of vengeance, even when it came around to Judah. But to their utter shock, Amos then turns to them, and they're not the apple of God's eye, but rather they are the bullseye of God's rebuke and judgment. They are uh, 
uh, called out for oppression, uh, false witnesses, selling slavery, for selling someone into slavery even for a pair of shoes, taking their last bit of clothing, for obscenity, incest that was happening in the community, and presumptuous religion and performance pretend religion. And from these things, from the light that God sheds, there are a couple things that we need to remember. The first is, no nation is immune from the sin of injustice. Even nations that aspire to liberty and life. Uh, And so as believers, as much as we want to be thankful for any of those things that we experience, we need to be sober-minded because you won't see what you're not looking for. If your mind is taken only to paint a picture that is based on what, what you which is an unrealistic picture of justice, you, you won't have scriptural eyes. You won't be able to, to soberly look in the fact that no nation, if the covenant nation of Israel and Judah had great injustice, how much more can America have great injustice? Secondly, there's no individual immune from injustice. The conservative writer David French says this, uh, we each like to think we're not unduly influenced by our immediate environment and culture. I'm the kind of person who was carefully considered, we, we say this, I'm the kind of person who was carefully considered both sides and has arrived at my positions through the force of reason and logic. Sure, I've got biases, but that only matters at the edges. The core of my beliefs are rooted in reason, conviction, and faith. You know, we believe that we're too fair, too sophisticated, uh, too devoted, too enlightened to have gross injustice or blind spots. This passage would uh, warn us against that. But thirdly, not even Christians in the church are immune from sin and injustice. The great theologian Alec Matir said, there is nothing so effective as religion to separate us from God's love, and to cement us to his wrath. What he's saying is, Israel had made the mistake. Well, we have the word of God. You know, we keep the festivals of God. In modern day, we might say, well, you know, I I attend church faithfully, or I have correct theology, or I tithe, or I, I try to serve and do this and that. And we actually believe that somehow it is insurance that we won't have injustices lurking in our heart and in our life. And we would be warned against it through the words of Amos. We should be led to pray as David prays, search me and know me. If there's any offensive way in me, Lord, we need to be eager to hear when someone cries injustice. Right now, there's such a tendency with the polarization to be so suspicious. One says this, the other says that. Brothers and sisters, we have to resist that, or the church is going to get into a tough spot. We are called to listen, to give people the benefit of the doubt, and we are to bear love and fruit of repentance. But I want to leave us some hope, because this stuff can get pretty discouraging, and that is, remember that you are light in the Lord. Those of us that believe and follow Christ that uh, we're not just a minute, we are light in the Lord, the Apostle Paul says. And Jesus says that we would be light of the world. As we do these things, as we avail ourselves and say, God, shine your light in me, he doesn't burn us up. 
but rather we find as we get humble, he drapes us in light. And we then can begin to do the work of light, which is the last point, the motivation for justice. As Amos talks about God's character, and then he also brings in the redemption from Egypt, which is a symbol of salvation, he presents a double motive for us in justice. The first is the character of God. And I want to ask you, have you seen uh, just how beautiful God is? Have you seen the just beautiful God? The God who shines forth on every page of Scripture. The God who radiates the Lord Jesus Christ, who enters the battle for oppressed, who, who has no fear of men, who speaks up, who is not blinded by his own cultural situation, but can see right through. Do you see the beauty of God's justice in Scripture? The way, it, the way it speaks and has insight that our world could never have. The reason I mention that is because our justice problem first, like all our problems, is a worship problem. If you and I are not worshiping the Lord of justice, there's no way we will be moved and motivated to do justice. But lastly, we can also talk about the grace that God has given us. Uh, my wife and I uh, just watched the movie Just Mercy, and as we did, uh, they closed the movie with a quote from Brian Stevenson, who wrote uh, the story about the unjust murder conviction of a man in Alabama and others. And he says, uh, we all need justice, we all need mercy, and perhaps we all need unmerited grace. You see, those of us that understand the gospel see the connection between justice and mercy, don't we? We understand that the cross... Uh, of Jesus was as much about justice as it was mercy. It showed, first of all, how serious God is about justice, that he must be just, so much so that he will uh, bring his justice down upon himself, upon his very son, because he cannot allow sin to go unchecked and unpunished. This is the Lord who is serious about justice, so much so that the Son of God would die under our judgment. But at the same time, we're reminded of the incredible mercy of God. That as God speaks these things to us, he does it so that he might draw us to one another. That he might, as I said, uh, let us be draped in the righteousness of God. That we might taste his unconditional love and acceptance. What a thing to see your injustice and to find God who has now made your forgiveness a matter of justice. This is what the gospel gives us. And that helps me not to be defensive about my race or if someone talks to me about my bigotry. Or help me not to cancel out people that aren't where they're supposed to be. Disciples of Jesus have a double motivation. Are you motivated for justice? And so with the basis, the light, and the motivation of justice, let's move into the study and pray that God changes us. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.